I'm Andrew Finley. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Professor Bernie Frischer. Dr. Bernie Frischer is a leading virtual archaeologist and author of seven printed books, three e-books, and dozens of articles on classics, archaeology, virtual heritage, and the classical world and its survival. He's the founding editor of Digital Applications in Archaeology and Cultural Heritage. He served as a professor of art history and classics at the University of Virginia, where he was also the director of the Virtual World Heritage Laboratory. Dr. Frischer's many projects include Rome Reborn, a new collaboration between Indiana University and the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Italy, and he's currently a professor of informatics at Indiana University in Bloomington. Dr. Frischer, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Andy. I appreciate it. We're happy to have you. I guess we'll just jump right in. Your career has been, let's say, varied, to say the least. It includes work as a classicist, as an archaeologist, and now as a professor of informatics. Each of these is an intensive and competitive field of academic pursuit. How would you describe your career trajectory to a person unfamiliar with any of these fields? I guess in a nutshell, you could say I was always looking for something I I could do with some competence uh, (laughs) and confidence, so I ended up uh, where I am now. No, but seriously, uh, I was always interested in the intersection of the arts, technology, and humanities. I grew up in a family that uh, owned cinemas in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, One of my uncles was an uh, electrical engineer, and... uh, when I was growing up, my I, I always thought I'd become a poet or a philosopher, uh, but I had a lot of hobbies like uh, I had a dark room. I was given a, a motion picture camera when I was 12 years old, and I wanted to become a movie director at that point. And uh, I, I had uh, I composed electronic music, having studied music at the Cleveland Institute of Music for many years. Meanwhile, I loved the humanities and the arts. I was in a high school that pioneered an integrated. Uh, an integrated curriculum that every year advanced us through uh, world history, studying one culture in all aspects, the literature, religion, arts, and and political history. So I I never considered the arts, technology, and humanities to be in any way antithetical or mutually exclusive. Rather, I thought that there was a continuum and one could help the other. So uh, to answer your question more directly, when I went to the university, I was thinking I'd become a philosopher. But to be a philosopher, I felt it was important to be able to read the uh, earlier philosophers in the original language. And I'd already studied Latin, Greek, German, and French in junior high and high school. So um, when I got to the university, I wanted to continue my study of those languages and perfect my knowledge of languages. And the one that was the weakest at that point was Greek, which I'd only had two years of. In my uh, freshman year, I actually was taking second year Greek, and we spent the whole year reading Homer, and I fell totally in love with Homer, and I wanted to become a then a classics major um, so that I could continue studying Greek literature, um, which I did. And uh, I never got back to philosophy except insofar as I studied the Greek philosophers in the original. And given my uh, earlier interest in, in, in things interdisciplinary and in that crossover between the arts, technology, and the and the humanities, it's, I think it's not surprising that I wasn't only interested in ancient literature, but also in ancient culture more generally, so uh, certainly in history. And once you're involved in history, then you need to also study archaeology because I, hard to quantify, but at least half of our sources for the ancient world are 
from the physical remains. So uh, I, um, after getting my Ph.D. in uh, Greek and Latin literature at the University of Heidelberg, I was lucky enough to get a postdoctoral fellowship for two years at the American Academy in Rome to concentrate on studying classical archaeology. Now, not a lot of our listeners might be aware about the stark differences between classical philology and classical archaeology. Certainly, they're related, and I think most philologists and most archaeologists recognize that. You did also mention um, interdisciplinary study or multidisciplinary study, let's say, uh, which has become really a buzzword over the last 20 years in, in higher education. But previous to that, it was not something that was really roundly encouraged outside of, I suspect, the field of classics. Did you find yourself at the forefront of, of interdisciplinary studies at some point in your career, or did it just happen? I, I remember hearing the term interdisciplinary as a buzzword, and very important one, in the 1960s. So I think it has been around uh, quite a long time. And, you know, academic administrators still don't know what to do with it. They, <laughs> they, they, they claim to love interdisciplinary work, but they, when it comes time to evaluate people doing it, uh, they always have to be pigeonholed, and you have to find the experts who are going to evaluate the work. And then as soon as you do that, then you're back into the traditional disciplines. So um, I do think, though, that the study of the classical world has uh, often been... Um, undertaken in an interdisciplinary spirit right from the beginning, if we think of, of Winkelmann, for example, the founder of art history and classical uh, archaeology in, in late 18th century Rome. He, his background was in philology, but also uh, in art history. In the 19th century uh, in Germany, where the science of antiquity really developed, there was this notion of Altertumswissenschaft, the science mm -hmm. of antiquity, which was, by definition, interdisciplinary. And the person doing Altertumswissenschaft, and one thinks of the great names like Mommsen and his son-in-law, Ulrich von Willemowitz Mühlendorf, the enemy of Nietzsche, they uh, were great philologists and had that background in the Greek and Latin language. But they also spent a lot of time in Greece and especially Italy. They knew the monuments of Rome inside out, published them to some extent. And that's the tradition I come out of. And maybe that's why I went to study in Heidelberg in Germany, having spent my junior year in Tübingen and uh, studied with some very inspirational uh, people in Altertumswissenschaft there. And I've always uh, had that vision of Altertumswissenschaft, of the unity of uh, our knowledge of antiquity and the way in which really life is a seamless web and you can't just pull out one strand and say, okay, I'm just going to look at the language. You can't look at the language without understanding the people using the language. You can't understand the people without understanding what they're doing for a living, even what clothes they're wearing and what food they're eating. And pretty soon you're back at the science of antiquity, which is to know as much as you can about everything, to understand anything in particular. Tell me about your time at the American Academy in Rome. Uh, my time at the American Academy in Rome was uh, really uh, life-changing in many ways. And I, it, I think my, my reaction to having that opportunity to live in Rome for, for, in my case, two years, and I was in the last group of t fellows who were there for two years, which now it's been only one year. Terms. Now it's, in most cases, only for one year, which I think is regrettable. Because when you're young, you've just gotten your PhD you, or whatever the highest degree is in your field, and the academy offers fellowships in the arts and architecture and musical composition, as well as in the humanities. But you always have to have your highest degree in the field. You have the, suddenly freedom, freedom to grow, to do something different. And when it's two years, it's 
and you're only in your 20s, that seems like a really long time. So you can branch off and learn Italian, uh, as I did, uh, and, uh, and you can study something new. And, and there again, I studied archaeology really intensively for the first time. I was very lucky to come right at the tail end of the career of the greatest American Roman archaeologist of the 20th century, Frank Brown, uh, who was the Mellon Professor of Classical Studies at the Academy. And I, I served as his photographer. I think I mentioned as a teenager I had a dark room and I uh, was interested in photography. So that was my uh, foothold in in archaeology was uh, my knowledge of photography. And Brown had a big excavation going 90 miles north of Rome on up the Turanian coast at Coza. And he also was uh, wrapping up a decades-old project going back to the 1930s on a building in the Roman Forum where the chief, which was the headquarters of the chief priest of the Roman state cult, the Regia. So he had a lot, lot for uh, me to do. And meanwhile, uh, back then, uh, the academy was on very hard times financially, and uh, our stipends uh, included room and board, which was great, and about $100 a month to live on which uh, otherwise, which was not very much. Luckily, the academy had a NEH grant, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, to expand its photographic archive. And because, again, I had that background in photography, I was able to work part-time in the photographic archive. And the purpose of the grant was to expand the collection to Greek and Roman sites all around the Roman Empire. The The strength of the collection prior to that grant was just the city of Rome itself. So I was paid to go to Sicily and Greece and Turkey and southern France and Spain on photographic campaigns, which were related to writing up the sites. And that gave me this great opportunity to get out and see uh, so many of the most important archaeological sites around the Mediterranean. And, well, at the same time, I was following Brown around and learning about Roman topography and archaeology in great detail and teaching in the summer school under Darby Scott of Bryn Mawr College uh, in, 19, in 1975 and 76. So I did that twice, which was unusual. Most people only did it once. I was his assistant. And, uh, you know, of course, as Brown himself said when I asked him, should I accept this uh, appointment when I didn't know anything. It came to me when I just got to the academy. I had not yet really started to study Roman topography. Brown said, of course you should accept it. The best way to learn any subject is to teach it. (laughs) And I always tell my students that. and that was certainly the case with me. I, I was able to work up by the end of my second summer a really great knowledge of the history of the urban development of Rome from the Iron Age to late antiquity and the Christianization of the city. So the academy uh, experience was absolutely fundamental, and I've never really mentally or psychologically and emotionally left the academy. I still remember being in a taxi going to the airport, leaving the academy and feeling very weepy and wondering if I'd ever get back. Well, that was in 1976, and I think I've been back almost every single year. And eventually, in 2001, my wife and I bought an apartment in Rome. (laughs) So uh, we've been able to spend uh, many months every year uh, in Rome since then. Have you ever thought about returning to the academy Uh, on a permanent basis or semi-permanent basis? The academy doesn't have really permanent academic positions. They have um, short-term positions like Professor Brown's position of head of the classical school or the director of the academy, but these are typically two- or three-year appointments. And... uh, 
maybe I'll uh, I'll confess to a defective character, but my own research <laughs> has, my own research has been uh, something that's been so engaging to me and my teaching, so engaging to me that I've never really wanted to take two three years off and do that kind of public service. So going from classical philology to classical archaeology, studying under one of the all time greats, truly, in Frank Brown, uh, and most influential scholars of the field, how did you find yourself? moving towards digital reconstructions? Well, it's almost precisely because I studied with Frank Brown that I got interested in digital reconstruction. Frank Brown loved models. In fact, there's, it, there's no doubt that it was because I studied with Frank Brown that I ended up doing what I'm doing. Because the very first day that he called the fellows together in 1974 to do the very first walk and talk, which we did every week, he took us somewhere, uh, the very first day, he took us to the Museum of Roman Civilization in that suburb of Rome uh, built in the 1930s called EUR. And there, we started our walks and talks by looking at a great physical model of ancient Rome, filling a room that's about uh, 60 feet across, with at a, made at a scale of 1 to 250, with uh, nobody knows exactly how many little models of all the buildings and streets and hills of Rome, but there must be seven to 10,000 buildings in that model. It's the whole city. And I was, as I think everybody has been I've ever taken there, just um, awestruck by the extent and detail of this model. And then I learned that it was actually very scientifically accurate and highly regarded, highly respected. That's why Brown took us there. That was a great place to start. And that gave me the idea right there and then that day of probably early October 1974, given my background in the arts and technology and the humanities, there ought to be some technology that we could apply to this model to get it out of this room into the hands and into the minds and eyes of the people of the world. And uh, the academy is a wonderful place for many reasons, one of which is it's very interdisciplinary, to bring up that term again. And we had a resident there from Berkeley in urban planning named Donald Appleyard, and he had developed a video editing system where he could composite architectural models with the neighborhoods or parts of cities where the proposed building would be um, inserted and these were used in uh, zoning hearings to give the public, which after all would have, have a hard time just reading the 2D uh, blueprints of a, of a building and imagining what the thing would look like, to give the public a, a, a good visualization uh, and so they'd be in a position to gauge the impact of the proposed building on their neighborhood. And uh, Donald said to me, we could use that system on this physical model of ancient Rome. And we started talking about doing that. And so then... Rome Reborn, what came to be known as Rome Reborn was off and running, which was the attempt to apply some kind of technology appropriate to getting all that information out uh, to the people of the world. We're speaking today with Dr. Bernie Frischer. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Professor Bernie Frischer. At what point did the technology really catch up to what you wanted to do? I'm not sure it has quite yet, <laughs> but it's getting close. Uh, when we're, right now we're on the NVIDIA 1080 graphics card is the high-end graphics card for gamers. I think when we're at the 2080, which at the rate <laughs> we're going will take about four or five more years, uh, we'll be there. The, the vision of Rome Reborn right from the beginning was use technology to get this model out of this hall uh, into the possession of... Uh, people around the world at a very low price or ideally at no no cost. And uh, more than that, it was to create the illusion of walking down the streets of ancient Rome to scale up the model so you weren't looking at it from a balcony above as you really do and seeing this thing reduced at a scale of 1 to 250, but you were looking at it 1 to 1 on the streets. Uh, and right now what we can do with consumer-level virtual reality devices that have come out like the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive, uh, Sony PlayStation VR headsets, is uh, we can support in real time for exploration where you can just walk around uh, wherever you want, uh, one significant landmark at a time, whether it be at the Colosseum or the Roman Forum or the Pantheon. So we're taking this overall city model we've made over the last however many years, over 20 years, and we're breaking it up into the individual monuments. The goal, though, after doing that for about five years is to tie them all together to create or recreate the city center. And when we are, when we do have the NVIDIA 2080 or whatever they're going to call it, video card, it will be powerful enough to allow people to walk anywhere they want through the streets of Rome. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, the original vision of Rome Reborn will have been uh, realized. And I'll just tell you as an aside, as a joke, when Brown introduced that model to us, he said, uh, unfortunately, you're a couple of years too late. Everybody who made it just, you know, died recently. <laughs> they died. We, I was there in 1974, and they died in the period 1970 to 73. Having started in the 1930s, he said this was a 40-year project of archaeologists and model makers. And when Donald Appleyard and I started talking about it, we said, ha, we'll be able to do this in two or three years. And here you well, are coming on year 50. <laughs> here I am coming on year uh, 40. What are, what are, yes, uh, yes, I'm com- I, I think I've even gotten beyond slightly year 40. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Surely you've got some good years left in you, Bernie. <laughs> yeah, well, I do feel I'm in a, in a rush to the finish line, though, because I'm 67 years old. So <laughs> like, I would like to finish it in the next five years. Well, it's a really tremendous resource, and many of our listeners might not be aware of the traditional models of archaeological education, which which started using plaster casts of things like the Parthenon frieze, uh, which then were replaced by slide projectors, um, terrible machines, um, causing confusion everywhere. Let me interject about the slide projector. I always said. That's going to be a technology that is going to become obsolete before it's ever perfected. And I think I was right. How many times have we seen our carousels fall off the machine, <laughs> scattering the slides all over the floor? So and how many I don't sli- think anyone shed a tear when the slide projector. Right? And how many times was a slide projector lecture uh, ever completed without an upside down and reverse slide in it? I think yes. very, very uh, rarely. I can tell you a lot of good stories about examples of that. <laughs> But now what you've done with Rome Reborn is offering a chance for people to combine the, the, the colorful and the visual with, to some degree, the material insofar as size and scale relates to, to human perspective. Uh, how does it feel to know that, that pretty much any time someone does a Google search looking for an ancient Roman building, 
that one of your models is what comes up. I'm pleasantly surprised that it's turned out to be useful. And, you know, if you search on ancient Rome or 3D model of ancient Rome, my project comes up as the first uh, result in a Google search, which is very gratifying. And some of the videos we've put out, because one thing, we, we can't allow you quite yet to walk randomly, you know, uh, through the city in real time. But we can render out video frames of different uh, segments of a walk and then edit them together. So I ended up making films after all, as I had wanted to do when I was 12 years old, but they weren't the kind of films I thought I'd do. And uh, those have had, um, in some cases, over a million uh, views. The one we did with the Khan Academy and Smart History is over 1.5 million views, which is very gratifying. Uh, so it, it is nice to know that um, my, in, you know, my hunch back in the 1970s that this would turn out to fascinate people and, um, that, and, and give them the sense of why Rome is so central to our Western civilization, that hunch I had in the 1970s, uh, yeah, I think was pretty much validated. And I think that with virtual reality now and the, this age of consumer-level virtual reality products that will go from a, below millions of people who have seen ancient Rome, at least our recreation of it, to tens of millions, then hundreds of millions, which, will, which was always the original idea. And that'll be, you know, that'll be extremely gratifying when, when that happens. There's some discussion in academic circles lately, as of late, I should should say, about protected content, pay for content in journals and scholarly production. Yet Rome Reborn and the work you've done on it is remarkably open to the public and usable and viewable. Your work with, with Khan Academy and Smart History, for example, was that an intentional decision you made to to create this resource that is by and large open and visible to the public? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a great believer in open access. In introducing me, you mentioned a journal I founded mm -hmm. called Digital Applications in Archaeology and Cultural Heritage. I actually stepped down from the editorship of that journal on October 1st, and I started a new journal called Studies in uh, Digital Heritage this month that is an open access journal. And the reason I stepped down is I could never persuade the, the publisher, Elsevier, to... Uh, bring the cost of what they call the article preparation charge, the APC, down to something that most scholars could afford. They mm -hmm. charge $3,000 to make an article open access. That's oh, way wow. beyond the budget of most archaeologists and humanists. Uh, I was hoping we could persuade them to get it down to a few hundred dollars. The new journal we founded is free. There, there is no article preparation charge, and we want to keep it that way. So I'm a big believer in open access. Having said that, though, I think that, uh, you know, I have licensed Rome Reborn, and I'm doing it even right now as we're speaking, to television stations. German TV is licensed many times to BBC, National Geographic, and others. I think if it's, if it's used for commercial purpose, then it's fine to uh, charge a, a fee for licensing it, and then we, we can reinvest that money uh, back in the project, which is uh, always hungry for for new funding, because we, even though we can give it away for free and want to give it away for free, we can't make it for free. We have to uh, make it by employing, uh, you know, highly trained, highly qualified professionals. Now, when you're developing a project like Rome Reborn, uh, considering the centuries of neglect, dilapidation, overbuilding, especially uh, on the structures of ancient Rome, you know, we we only have fragments of foundations, fragments of architectural varia. Uh, and, frankly, incomplete historical sources. How do you make the decisions on what to include in a model and what to omit? 
Well, I always tell my students that once you start to re restore or reconstruct, you've got to go all the way. <laughs> you can't stop because uh, it's really uh, either or. For example, if you have the foundation, I always like to cite this example. Let's say you did an excavation, you found the foundations of a building, and maybe you found a little pottery, so you suspect it was a house because you've got something practical, plates that people ate off of or fragments of plates. So you know it was a house, but all you have is a foundation. You, you, you survey the foundation, you know the dimensions, you know the building materials, again, from fragments on the site. Is it more conservative and scientific to extrude off the foundations um, a box? So walls coming out of those foundations. It would have the right dimensions and be made out of the right materials, but would have no windows or doors or balconies or whatever. Is that more scientific because it's more conservative, it's more restrained? Or is it more scientific to restore a doorway and some windows and so on? Uh, this can be debated, but from my point of view, it's much more conservative to put in a door because nobody was building a box. So if you, if you reconstruct it as a box, that's definitely wrong. If you <laughs> reconstruct it as a normal house uh, using the style of the culture, the architectural style of the culture for the doorway and the windows and so on, then you at least have a chance to, to be somewhat right. You won't be 100% right. And then I always tell my students, if you're going to go into the study of virtual heritage and, and do these recreations of things from the past, you better have a high tolerance for uncertainty because we're constantly uh, coming up against uncertainty and a lack of information, and we're constantly having to use our informed historical imagination to fill in the gaps, to fill in or to recreate the doorway and the windows and so on. If, if, you, if you feel, you know, very uptight about that and it makes you uncomfortable, I always say, go into some 21st century stu study, area of study, where you, your problem is going to be the opposite. You have too much information. <laughs> now, having said that, uh, this field of virtual heritage is not simply one where you can use your, own, your, your imagination and, and do, do your restorations any which way that uh, comes to mind. Typically, uh, there are when we have uncertainty, we have a certain limited number of plausible variants that could reflect the way the thing was actually built or the way it actually looked. And our duty as scientists is to reconstruct in all the plausible ways. And you mentioned uh, casts and so on. The modern equivalent of the plaster cast for sculpture is a 3D model. And uh, if you're talking about a 3D model of a existing statue, most likely it's, if it's an ancient statue, it's missing its head, or if it has its head, it's missing its nose or earlobe, or there's damage, and you have to restore that. Almost certainly if it's a white, a white marble ancient statue, it's missing its paint. So to, to get back to my point about creating plausible variants, and that it's our duty to do so, the, the greatest example I can think from my own work is that when I reconstructed the statue of the philosopher Epicurus, we ended up making 12 variants of how that might have looked. And so far as I know, that's the, uh, the greatest number of variants that any person in the field of virtual heritage has ever offered. 
but it was necessary because you could you could see you could see the logic of of the game of restoration and say you know the throne could have been marble or bronze it could have if it was bronze it could have been uh, patinated or not patinated uh, and and so on and so forth so there there was a, a logic which if you played it out resulted in 12 variants and we made the 12 variants uh, it didn't take that much time once we had the basic 3D uh, geometry of the mm-hmm. statue to texture it differently to create these different finishes was uh, took a relatively short amount of time. But it was our duty to do that because if we put out only one, it would be very misleading, I think. Uh, and it would have, as you said, when you do a Google search on a building in Rome, you come up with our model of ancient Rome. That's going to then have an impact and it really affect people's thinking and, and their imagination. So it's our duty that, to put out the variants and show that there is uncertainty through these variants so that uh, um, we don't mislead people. Misleading people is your your greatest concern or your greatest reservation about digital modeling. I'm guessing. I would say misleading people is because we know from you know the reaction right from the beginning in the 1990s when I made my first models of ancient Rome. People were it, there was one the very first time I showed a, a really big model was at the American Academy in Rome. Appropriately enough, in the mid 90s, it was Trajan's Forum. And we had in the audience the leading lights of Roman archaeology, uh, the superintendent of, for the city of Rome of archaeology, the superintendent uh, for archaeology of the nation state of Italy in Rome, and other people on that level. There were perhaps 100 people in the room. And there were, I saw a lot of people crying. They had never imagined they would ever be able to wander through Trajan's Forum again and see it the way it was. This was brand new. It was overwhelming. And I think for a lot of people coming to uh, virtual heritage for the first time, uh, it's very overwhelming and has a tremendous impact. So I think we have to be very careful about the impact that we make on people. It's fascinating hearing you describe your work with with Rome Reborn, digital modeling, digital heritage, uh, because at times... You speak about the the scientific nature of the of the endeavor, and at other times you speak about inspiring people, uh, which seems a little bit more of a return to classical archaeology and its classical practice versus the last several decades of the field, which which have very much privileged excruciating minutia <laughs> in excavations. And I've done excavation too, and I'm still involved in excavation field work right now as we speak. So. Uh, I think I said uh, way back in this interview that the interdisciplinary approach, uh, uh, the, the Altertumswissenschaft, is attractive to me because when you get into something, if you get into the use of a word, you can't just limit your study typically to the uh, study of linguistics. You have to understand the use of the word in everyday life and the people using it, their gender. Perhaps the word is gendered. Uh, perhaps it has to do with age. Children use a certain vocabulary. Perhaps social class. Think of vulgar Latin, the lower class Latin. So the you immediately move away from the narrow uh, subject. That involves minutiae. You have to start from the minute, from the detail, from the concrete, and then work your way out to put that um, thing that might seem very trivial, uh, a, a piece of pottery, a fragment of a piece of pottery, into the original whole piece of pottery, and then the whole piece of pottery uh, onto a table, and the table into a room, and the room into a building, and the building into a city, and then bring in the people who are using all of this, and, and there's just a natural progression that never stops, which at the end results in a reconstruction, which if it's an important site culturally laden with symbolism, 
can still move people today. Uh, now, not every reconstruction will be of a inspiring site. Some will be of a very humdrum site and will not necessarily have that impact. So I, I wasn't talking about those humdrum places when I <laughs> was talking about how some of our work anyway can inspire people. So first we find a classical philologist turns into a classical archaeologist, becomes a, a professor of art history and archaeology. The next clear step is obviously becoming a professor of computer science at a school of informatics, right? You've been at IU for I'm in my I'm in my fourth, actually. Fourth year. Be, yeah. You've no. been at IU for four years. Did you find it somewhat surprising that a school of informatics would be interested in bringing on a classical archaeologist? And how did this happen? I, I was uh, pleasantly surprised, but, but only looking at it from the North American point of view. The field of archaeoinformatics is um, very well developed in Europe and is very well funded by the European Union. In the United States, of course, we don't spend very much money on cultural heritage, unfortunately, in cultural heritage-related studies, as certainly compared to the Europeans. So from the North American point of view, it was a pleasant surprise that a school like um, uh, like ours at IU would, would want to recruit me. Um, but from the European point of view, you know, it, it wasn't unexpected or, or uh, exceptional. So... Um, I was actually happy to come here because in North America, in my whole entire academic career, I was always kind of a fish out of water or a round peg in a square hole in that I was hired to do one thing. I would, as you can tell from my career progression, I evolved into doing something else, but I still had that original job. And my colleagues who originally hired me thought I was just going through a phase <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, developing a hobby, uh, which they hoped I'd uh, outgrow and get back to the... Uh, serious task that they hired me to uh, fulfill, which I, I understand. But um, I never was able to actually profess what it was that I was um, most interested in at any given moment along this career, which had so many different twists and turns. When things finally settled down and, and I, when I was over 60 and started doing archaeoinformatics full-time, and I'd really started that uh, with the Rome Reborn Project in the mid-1990s. So I was in my early 50s when I really started doing that. And, I, and my career really, at that point, you could say the evolution came to a natural end with archaeoinformatics, which is, on the other hand, very capacious. It covers, it's really a great interdisciplinary container into which you can throw all kinds of, of uh, sub-disciplines. How could you describe archaeoinformatics to, to a layperson, to this, what is an emerging field in the United States? Archaeoinformatics is... Um, on a first view, and the most accessible way to uh, explain it to people would be, it is a form of scientific communication and expression that uses 3D digital technology in a way analogous to how we used to use words to communicate information about the past. So what do I mean by that? Uh, humanists generally, and certainly archaeologists, have some basic tasks that they're always doing no matter what their field. They are uh, documenting the monuments entrusted to them, whether it is the plays of Shakespeare or paintings of Poussin or the whole 
city of ancient Rome uh, as it survives today archaeologically. This, all this stuff has to be documented. That's task number one. Then it has to be edited. It has to be analyzed. And um, we have to talk about uh, the history of the monument and how it got to us today and what later interventions of restoration there may have been. If you're talking about a play of Shakespeare, you go back to the first folio and then you look at all the editions since then. And when you open up uh, your current text, uh, you may well have embedded in it emendations of, of later editors that may or may, may not be right and may or may not be flagged in a footnote. So as a humanist, you need to analyze the way in which the monument was handed down. This is all just steps, steps one and two and not really the interesting part of humanistic research. The interesting part then is analysis and interpretation. And once you do that, that is once you understand the monument, your final task is to com communicate your understanding. Well, normally scholars have done that by writing. With 3D technologies um, applied to the study of 3D objects, uh, artistic, architectural monuments, we can do the same thing using, using an approach which is more uh, commensurate with the object itself. So words are not really commensurate to three-dimensional objects. You can describe a statue, but it's much easier just to show a picture of it. That's a two-dimensional representation, which will be more immediately meaningful and communicative to the average person than a verbal description. Uh, you, if you have an interactive 3D model, then you actually have, in a sense, a replica. You've made a replica of, of the object itself, and the person can spin it around and look at anything, even look at the top of the head, which in reality, if it's, a, if it's nine feet tall, you might not be able to do very easily. So you can see then on this level of documentation, the 3D technologies are very, very powerful when the object being documented is a, itself a 3D object. For the next step of analysis and interpretation, that's where software comes into play, and we can put the 3D model of the object of interest to us into you know, what we call a game engine, not because we're going to play a game with it, but because it allows us to move around the recreated, digitally recreated environment. And in doing that, we can have observations or insights that short of real time travel, we would never be able to have. And indeed, we can make the study of the past empirical, which we were never able to do because we were never able to go back in time and run experiments or make observations of places that no longer exist. So that is extremely powerful. And that's a very important part of archaeoinformatics or virtual, what we also call virtual heritage. We tend to call virtual heritage in America. Archaeoinformatics is what they call it in Europe. And then when it comes to communication, uh, we can use the web. We, uh, really, only in the last couple of years has it been possible to put an interactive 3D model onto a web page. And that is very powerful for communication purposes, uh, certainly more powerful than a 2D photograph, which we used to do, or let alone a verbal description. Uh, which is often uh, comes across as uh, just j gibberish to the average person, just to say a musical score of a Beethoven symphony is not going to be anywhere near as communicative to the average person as listening to a performance by Herbert von Karajan and, and the Berlin Philharmonic of that symphony. You know your audience. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do know my audience here on wonderful WFIU, which I do support. <laughs> We're speaking today with Professor Bernie Frischer. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Professor Bernie Frischer. In some ways, do you think of your virtual reality models less virtual reality and more augmented reality? I'm thinking in particular about your recent model of the Basilica of Maxentius and Constantine, where, and, and this has not, not been released yet, but where, where viewers can toggle between the, the site as it is today and the site as it was potentially in the 4th century A.D., you know, I always like to say the augmented reality is reality plus information. Virtual reality is information minus reality. <laughs> so in, with virtual reality, you put a headset over your eyes, so you're t- taking away reality and you're immersing yourself in the artificial reality that we've recreated. In augmented reality, you're wearing glasses that are transparent typically, but onto which additional information can mm-hmm. be superimposed over the scene you're seeing. So... Uh, I think you're right that the work that we're doing now uh, does have a strong element of augmented reality. We're always trying to show people what the place looks like today and allow them to toggle back and forth between today and and back then, uh, which no longer exists. So um, I think we're actually trying to have it both ways, augmented reality and virtual reality, to tell you the truth. And I'd say the augmented reality part of it, that is the today and showing what them look, what it looks like today, that really relates to something very practical. When I, Because our initial approach for, for this project that you're referring to, which only started about 18 months ago and is now in the testing phase, it should be released fairly soon. The, the original goal was simply to present it in virtual reality on the Oculus Rift headset. But when I went to Oculus headquarters in... March and showed the executives there the work in progress. One of them said to me, and "This kind of I found this flabbergasting. I don't understand why you're you're making this. I mean, isn't that the way it looks today?" And I was thinking, "Not really. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say this, but it looks totally different. Uh, it's completely, almost completely gone, and all you see are, is the fabric of some of the walls and the foundations. You do not see." Uh, the entire building revetted in beautiful uh, polychrome marbles and the incredibly almost insane fractal design of the coffering of the ceiling Mm -hmm. and the 40-foot-tall statue of the Emperor Constantine at the end of the hall. You see none of that. His head, his hands, his knee, and his feet, I think. Yeah, which we scanned, actually. We scanned in the Capitoline Museums and used that as the basis for for our model of that statue. But he didn't know that, and so it, then it struck me, well, I guess, uh, of course, I know that because I go to Rome a few months every year, and I've been doing that since 1974, but the average, even very educated person doesn't know that. So we better put in, uh, we better put in the now as well as the then and allow you to toggle between the now and the then. Well, speaking about scanning sculptures, that's a major project that you have going on right now, in particular the um, collaboration between Indiana University and the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think it's a a wonderful project for many reasons. But uh, For me, as somebody in this field and has been in the field for a long time, uh, the most striking thing about it is that we're able to do it at all because... uh, that we're able to do something on this scale. The scale of the project is over 1,000 statues. And if we could work every day of the week, given the breakthroughs in technology that I'm thinking of, we could do the whole project in probably under a year. But uh, for practical 
reasons, we're limited to working only on Mondays when the museum is closed and only when we ourselves could be over there, which is a few weeks in the summer. So it'll actually take five years to play itself out. But why, why is this so striking to be able to do it on this scale? Well, since the mid-90s, we could scan, digitally replicate uh, in 3D a statue. But to do it, we needed a very expensive dedicated device, uh, a device such as a laser scanner or a structured light scanner. These devices cost over $100,000. The software to process the data typically cost over $10,000 per seat. And the process of gathering the data and then processing it took a really long time. So the first project, well, it's not really the first project I did. The first project I did was that philosopher statue of Epicurus. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first one I did uh, that's sort of comparable is the Lakawan statue group in the Vatican Museum. In, I think, 2007, we got funding from the Crest Foundation to go over to the Vatican Museum, which very uh, generously let us do the project, and we scanned the statue. It took seven days of of scanning nonstop to gather uh, all of the data using a structured light scanner. Uh, And by the way, the founder of the company that made that scanner, Bernd Breukmann, came down from Germany to help us with the project because he was very engaged in the cultural heritage applications of his equipment, which was mainly used by companies like Boeing and Mercedes-Benz in industrial applications. And then the, to process the data took over a month. And actually, Bernd Breakman personally processed the data of the Lakuan for us, which was very nice of him. Then, in the last 10 years, slowly but surely, a new approach to gathering the 3D data was developed based on an algorithm that, that computer scientists call structure from motion. And the motion is the uh, camera, a photographic camera, moving around a scene or an object, taking pictures. And the structure is putting all those pictures together to create points in Cartesian space. Every pixel in the picture becomes a a point with an XYZ coordinate in Cartesian space. Uh, And basically, the goal is to have one such point per pixel. So if you take, if you're using a 24 megapixel camera and you take a thousand pictures, you're going to have uh, over a billion points. Do the numbers and, uh, and you can calculate the number of points you'll have. It's a lot of points. The more points, the more detail, the better. And, uh, and yet you can do that very, very quickly compared to laser scanning. And then we have software to process the photos and find the common points, register one photo to the next, as we say, and generate a point cloud, generate all those points, and then make a mesh, join the points up to make triangles, over which you can put a texture. If you don't have the triangle, if you just have the points and you, can't have a, you don't have a surface, if you don't have a surface, you can't put the photograph of the object back onto the model. When you put the photograph of the object back onto the model, you now have a highly photorealistic uh, 3D model, 3D representation of the room or the building or the statue. So I was actually able to, to use the uh, photogrammetric approach, as we call it, the structure from motion approach on the Lakhwan statue group a couple of years ago, and it only took a half hour to photograph the statue group, and it only took uh, another half hour or so to process all the photos. And uh, the results were every bit as good. From as, days to hours. From days to, to a couple of hours. And then Bernd Breugman and I wrote an article comparing point for point the accuracy of the photogrammetric model, which was so fast and inexpensive to make, to his structured light 
uh, model, and the average difference of one point to the next across the millions and millions of points was 1.5 millimeters. Well, the human eye can only detect a difference of three millimeters, so 1.5 millimeter uh, difference is uh, below the threshold of human vision, so it's totally acceptable. And we don't really know what ground truth is. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't just assume that the structured light model is ground truth and is better than the photogrammetric model. We're not sure, but they're very close. And yet the uh, speed and efficiency and cost, the economy of, of take, making the photogrammetric model is so much better than the old structured light or laser scan model. So that's why today we can, we can, we can without seeing our psychiatrist first, agree to digitize in 3D a thousand statues in the Uffizi in a reasonable period of time for a reasonable budget. We, we could have done that 20 years ago, but it would have taken decades and m many millions of dollars. Do you see a point when you might be able to analyze the interior of, of rooms in the same way that you do with statue groups? For example, the Pantheon in Rome? We can, we can already uh, make models of, of rooms, interiors of rooms or exteriors of buildings, using the same thing. In fact, using drones... Um, we we can put cameras uh, uh, up into the air and fly them around the object, and we're doing that with the Uffizi Project because part of the Uffizi Project includes the Boboli Gardens, so a big garden behind the Pitti Palace filled with a lot of statues and including the Medici Obelisk brought from Rome and set up behind the Pitti Palace. And the easiest way for us to do the photographic campaigns of things like the Obelisk, which is quite high, and the statues, which are tend to be colossal and also set on very tall bases, is to, is to uh, use the drone so we can get the camera up into the air and have it fly around uh, the object of interest to us and taking a lot of pictures. Now, when you refer to we, I assume you're talking about your team of students that you work with here at Indiana University. What can you tell yes. I think our listeners would be very interested in the composition of your student groups, what their educations are. Do they see themselves more as informaticians, or do they see themselves more as art historians and archaeologists? What kind of training do they have in both fields? Uh, that's a good question. I, I did come to Indiana and left University of Virginia because I had the chance to start a doctoral program in virtual heritage, and we uh, are now in the second year of that program, and we have five students who've come from all over the country. They have different backgrounds. Some uh, have a background in anthropology, and anthropology has a strong emphasis on in um, archaeology. Others come from uh, classical studies. Uh, another comes has a background in architecture. So whatever the background, we see virtual heritage as virtualizing cultural heritage. So we see ourselves working hand in glove with uh, people in the traditional disciplines that occupy themselves with cultural heritage, whether it's art history, archaeology, anthropology, architectural history. Um, and we are offering the practitioners of those traditional disciplines new tools, new information, uh, new affordances to take that sort of virtual time travel, go back to the past and make observations, run experiments, and uh, ideally have new insights then, make new discoveries that would not be possible, but that are the kinds of discoveries or answering the kinds of questions that they've traditionally been asking. So our program requires, yes, a lot of work in informatics uh, and special work in 3D modeling technologies, but it also requires students to take a lot of courses in to have a concentration in a traditional field of cultural heritage. 
And I think that our students, therefore, see themselves... I think that I, I really don't want to speak for them, and I hope maybe you'll have a chance to interview some of them, but I, I do think that the, the young lady from anthropology thinks of herself as an anthropologist, and the, the uh, people from the, with a the classical background still think of themselves as classical archaeologists, but they have this special tool set uh, that they can apply to have new ideas and insights that uh, the, uh, their contemporaries who are pursuing a Ph.D. in a traditional field of cultural heritage would not have. So true interdisciplinary study, it seems like, I with guess, your team. <laughs> I guess so. It's that interdisciplinariness is raising its head again. Well, do you see your project with the Uffizi as leading to, to future collaborations between your program at Indiana University and other institutions? Or is there anything lined up in the future I, that I, you can discuss? Oh, okay. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I better call my lawyer first. Um, let me think. Well, I, I do think that we're entering a golden age of, of 3D technologies. Because of the structure for motion, photogrammetry, it's much easier to gather the primary data. Because we have a lot of open access, uh, open source, free software, we can use the models that we create photogrammetrically to, um, for analytical purposes to generate those uh, new insights through experiments and observations. And then we have virtual reality, and coming soon, uh, to your local uh, Best Buy uh, augmented reality. But we already have virtual reality uh, on the consumer level. And so we can now uh, get the final product out to the people of the world uh, at very, very low cost, which is all very wonderful. So we're in this uh, golden age. And I think that that, that is understood by, the author by many authorities responsible for our cultural heritage institutions. So the Uffizi approached me uh, last December to, to start this wonderful project. The word then got out among other Italian museums, since they're part of the Ministry of Culture of Italy, the word got out uh, among uh, other museums, and they're starting to ask us if we can come and help them. Uh, most recently, I, I was in Rome just a couple weeks ago talking to the director of the Palazzo Altemps, which is one of the great um, museums for classical sculpture in Rome. It houses the Ludovisi collection mm -hmm. of sculpture. And uh, she would like us to do the same thing. And luckily, I have a, a, a student who wants to uh, focus on that uh, project. And uh, other museums in, in this country have approached us about doing similar projects, perhaps not comprehensive, every single last piece in their collection, but at least some um, of the most important masterpieces. So, um, And I know, forgetting about just what we're doing, that other groups, other museums are undertaking similar uh, projects Elsewhere, So, you know, um, the world isn't letting the grass grow under its feet. Now that we've had this great breakthrough in, in the ability to digitize um, art objects in 3D, uh, the word is getting out, the knowledge is getting out, and these massive pro projects are starting to, um, to happen. And as they do, we can foresee in the near future, the online uh, publication of interactive catalogs of uh, sculpture, furniture, jewelry, uh, other works of art that are essentially three-dimensional. And uh, again, we had a breakthrough in uh, web technology through HTML5 that allows us to put the interactive 3D model onto a web page wherever we want and use it as a design element of a web page analogous to a text, a photograph, and a piece of audio or, or video. We've been able to 
publish all those forms of media since the late 90s on an HTML page. Only in the last, what, four years since the spring of 2011 have we been able to do the same thing with an interactive 3D model. So the whole pi that whole pipeline of documentation, interpretation, analysis, and uh, ultimately communication uh, when it comes to 3D technology has really undergone tremendous uh, shift uh, and improvement uh, just since 2010-11. And so uh, these big projects are starting to take shape and more are, more are certainly uh, on their way. Well, thank you very much, Professor Frischer. I've been speaking today with Professor Bernie Frischer from the IU School of Informatics. Thank you for being with us here today. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. This is Andrew Finley for Profiles. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Will Murphy. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.